Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Good morning, everyone. Tom Keen here in New York. We say good morning on economics, finance, investment, on politics, international relations. Joining me this morning, Barry Ritholtz, out with his t- 10 finance books worth reading this winter. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. 10 books that you have out. Was it hard to put it together? Uh, the difficulty is cutting it down from yeah. thousands. Yeah. Now, by the way, I do this... Every winter and every summer, we put yeah, out a list of 10 I books. What's different about this list is instead of telling you, hey, these are 10 books that are just coming out. You go back. I, yeah, I looked at the, I looked at my purchased yeah. book to read book ratio, the P to R ratio. The P to R ratio. Which is actually uh, somewhere in the low twos. Yeah. It's a very disappointing number. Yeah. We all have bookshelves at home filled with books yeah. that we had every intention of reading. Well, but we don't. But, but let's be honest. Nobody read A Brief History of Time. It may be the most sold book in history, completely unread. In finance, there are lots of books like that. Oh, okay. So I picked 10, and uh, well, I think they're a fun collection. Yeah, we'll talk about that through the uh, morning. Barry Ritholtz with us, writing for Bloomberg View and Smart Stuff. Uh, tons to talk about. We'll talk to Mr. Ritholtz solo here uh, later in the hour. Conrad DeQuadros with us. This is the patient Conrad DeQuadros, who had to put up with a really interesting panel in Frankfurt, Germany. You were very patient on television as... Chair Yellen elbowed you out of the way, and then Governor Carney elbowed you out of the way. And then Mr. Draghi. Who who has the biggest challenge in 2018 of, let's presume, Powell, Draghi, Carney, Corota? Who's got the toughest road ahead? Well, I would think that the the toughest road – actually, I'm going to pick two people. I think that um, Carney has, is going to have a tough road because um, it, right now they have inflation that's above – their target at 3%. Uh, they have the expectation that inflation will slow, but a, a lot of that is seems to be kind of out of their hands. A big part of their expectation for slowing inflation is the improvement in the value of the pound. Um, but of course, that is being driven by political events in, mm-hmm. in uh, the UK. Uh, it's been driven by Brexit. And um, with some of the, the difficulties of Theresa May, we've seen the pound take a, a dip down. So, uh, you know, it's some of the movements in the pound are kind of out of his hands, and yet he needs that to get the slowing yeah. in inflation. Who else? Um, and then on, on um, for, for, for Draghi, his issue is that, you know, they have this expectation of a small slowing in inflation. Right. Uh, and based on that, they have the expectation that they'll be buying mm-hmm. uh, another $270 billion of, a billion euros of bonds next year. Um, but, you know, the, that inflation outlook is obviously right. quite uncertain, so they could be challenged <coughs> by it. The great acclaim of Conrad de Quadros and John Riding, uh, framed by you guys at Bear Stearns, was the putting green. Does Janet Yellen have any clue on the fairway where the putting green is? To, to go back to your historic image? You know, the, the putting green analogy we, we came up with um, back in the mid-2000s when uh, the, we first started with the discussions uh, of gradualism and, and why the Fed thought that that was a good idea. And, and we argued that that wasn't a good idea. Gradualism is like when you take the putter out, but but we were still standing, um, you know, uh, back on the tee box. Um, and and that, that's something that's kind of morphed into, in, in I think, something even worse now where um, I, I don't even know if there's a golf analogy anymore for, for how slow the, yeah. the Fed has been going. So 
Um, but, you know, the, the fact is there, there hasn't been, as they've correctly pointed out, there hasn't been any um, bad outcomes yet. But the problem yeah. is we don't know what's going to happen going forward. But, so, yeah, Barry, do you play golf? I do not. I don't either. I, I have a busy schedule that allows some indulgences. I, I would rather be on a tennis court than a golf. Oh, oh well. So right. that's, you know, you could yeah. work up a sweat. You really don't work up a sweat other than carrying a bag with yeah. golf. And those carts are so underpowered. They really need a little more horsepower. Yeah. So um, I have a question for our guest about what's happening with the Federal Reserve. We, um, I keep seeing a lot of pushback to the gradual pace of normalizing rates in that the Fed is behind the curve. Uh, and you could see this because the yield curve is now flattening and it's problematic and blah, blah, blah. Do you buy into any of those the Fed is ruining us sort of arguments? You know, on the yield curve, which I think is a great question, it's obviously something that uh, people are very focused on right now. Uh, we're not yet at levels on the on the yield curve in terms of the flatness of the yield curve where we need to be worried about a downturn in the, in the economy. But at the same time, I, I think it's an important indicator as I, as I think it is. Um, the other issue is that we have a yield curve that's being influenced both at the front end and at the back end by, by policies. Um, so what kind of message is, is it delivering? Like if we look back at when we had the, the, the Treasury Fed Accord, which is the last time uh, in which there was explicit uh, action on the part of the central bank to target both the front end and the back end of the yield curve, it wasn't particularly uh, instructive back then either. We went into recession when the yield curve was at 200 basis points. Um, so right now, you know, if the Fed wanted to steepen the yield curve, they could do that quite easily. They could just communicate that they're not going to do much on the front end of the curve. Um, but they're going to accelerate the the, the wind-down to the balance sheet. That would steepen the yield curve. Would that be something that's necessarily good for the economy? I'm not, I'm not sure that we can make that case. So um, the, the yield curve, I think, is is going to be important. You know, if we would get down to flat or inverted yield curve, I'd, I'd be a little bit more concerned. But but right now, I'm I'm not given the fact that although it's narrowed, it's we still have a relatively steep yield curve. I mean, and isn't that the nature of, of a Fed tightening cycle, that the curve should flatten somewhat? It it, it does, and it, and it should, but, but but at the same time, the you know, the, I guess the question is that it's flattening, uh, the extent to which it's flattening on such a gradual pace of, of, um, of, of rate hikes, mm. and I think that that's where people are becoming a little concerned. Do the models work? And I'm talking about basic macro 101, ISLM. Paul Krugman had a brilliant essay on his wheelhouse skill, which is international economics. Do the models we have work, or are we so international, so global in our flows and the speed of transfer of money, goods, and services that the old models don't work? You know, that that's where I think a lot of central bankers are beginning to question. They're, they're questioning yeah. their models, and particularly related to inflation, and that their models told them that inflation would have uh, picked up by by more than than it did, and, but we're and so international, so, like in our labor economy, that we're not getting the wage growth we you know, thought we get. I think that's critical because obviously, I think most yeah. people would agree that that globalization and the the extent to which global value chains have have uh, increased that's something that's been a dampening factor on on, on uh, inflation. Technology has been a dampening factor on inflation, but you know, uh, you know, we we've we've talked about. Uh, before the, the the Phillips curve and the way the Fed the Fed looks at that, there's really nothing that's if you look at the Phillips curve, um, particularly the Phillips curve for prime working age uh, people, 
Um, the Phillips curve still looks very similar to, to, to what it has in the past. So my, my expectation is that we are going to see some pickup in wage growth. Uh, the Fed will start to doubt its, uh, infl- its inflation models a little bit less. Um, and that's not necessarily because that those wages are going to feed through into higher inflation. We also have a lot of other things going on. Um, I think the general view is that that Powell as Fed chair is going to just be a continuation of Yellen. But there's one area where that's not the case, and I think that's on regulation. We've already started to see some moves there. So, um, you know, that's another issue. The, the breakdown in the credit multiplier, I think, mm-hmm. has something to do with regulation, and that's something that's beginning to shift. So we've seen a lot of tightening on the credit side post-credit crisis. The pendulum has swung, swung from if you can fog a mirror, you get a mortgage, to uh, we're going to make everybody jump through the most ridiculous hoops. How much of that comes from the Fed? How much of that comes from um, Graham Dodd? And how much of that is coming just from the banks overreacting the way they did previously? I, I think it's a common I, – I, I'd have a hard time um – you know, quantifying each of those, but I think they're all important. Um, we know that one area that's changing is is on on regulations. It's not just the Fed, um, but you know, for example, the the I think you could look at regulations and say that it's some it was somewhat heavy-handed as it relates to smaller banks, and that's something that's already begun to change. You know, the numbers that are being discussed with this shift in the the size of a bank that mm-hmm. that faces um, uh, regulation by the by the federal oversight by the Fed um, could reduce the number of banks from forty to twelve. Um, and, and so it, it is. There is some um, shifts, I think, happening on on that front, um, and the the heavy handedness of regulation. That the, that pendulum has begun to swing yeah. a bit in the other direction. Barry Richards with me this morning, and if you're sort of waking up and going, okay, what's the price? of all that's going on in Washington. This is the most important half hour of the day. This is the most important interview of the day. He is, without question, our advisor on fiscal affairs. Stan Collender in the trenches for years of Capitol Hill. Years ago, he did a Manhattan phone book of analysis on the dynamics of the budget. And now we just want to know, Stan Collender, the view from 60,000 feet how much will the deficit expand over the next decade, given all the tax cut reform love on Capitol Hill? Well, if you look at the, uh, the analysis put out by the University of Pennsylvania yesterday, it said uh, anywhere from $1.5 to $2 trillion over the next 10 years. Uh, that's pretty consistent with a variety of other analyses that have come out. The only way you don't get there, the only way you, you do what Steve Mnuchin said uh, uh, and said it's going to pay for itself is with growth that would be virtually unprecedented. I mean, even Barry hasn't right. seen growth that level over over that period of time. Can can good politicians on Capitol Hill, desirous of getting reelected, can they go with Mr. Mnuchin on the leap of faith of economic growth? Oh, sure. Uh, look, th- th- this this tax bill has nothing to do with the economy. Uh, it's it's not as if the economy needs stimulus right now. In fact, it probably almost certainly doesn't. 
this is a tax bill that's not economic uh, in, in origin. It's totally political. So the president and Republican can say we did what we promised we, we would do. Um, this is a, the Trump family tax and if family and friends tax cut. This is going to not help the voters who voted for uh, Trump, but help the rich and uh, the, the okay. Trump families. I mean, Barry, that's the first time I've heard that. Uh, Stan, <laughs> to be clear here, as Barry uh, jumps in, that. you're calling this the Trump family and friends tax cut. I am, yes, indeed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, Stan, we have one version that comes out of the House that's fairly um, aggressive, and then something that I, I think it's safe to say is a little more realistic out of the Senate. What's the final version of this going to look like? If you if you had to pick a number, uh, 20% corporate tax rate, 25%, the LLC pass-through, uh, what, what do you see really coming out of this when all is said and done? Well, first of all, I have a question of whether or not what the Senate passes will be acceptable to the House. Ultimately, it probably will be, um, because they're they're so desperate to get something, anything. Uh, but well, whatever, why is that? Comes, is that just we want to win and we don't care what it looks like, or well, we promised everybody we would do it. Uh, we don't want to get the president's tweets criticizing us for not doing it. Uh, we want to reward our contributors. Uh, and, and, and encourage them to contribute more for the next election. Uh, again, this has nothing to do with the economy. Uh, I think everybody I hear on Bloomberg tells me that uh, it's not going to produce the level of growth that, uh, that the administration is claiming. Um, and, it, and it's not like the Fed requires stimulus. In fact, it's probably going to result in higher interest rates. But to get to your basic question, I think what comes out of the Senate is more likely to be what, what we see is a final version. Um, and that's a problem for the House members from uh, New York, New Jersey, uh, California, Republican House members, because of the, high, uh, because of the, the Senate uh, tax bill does away with the deduction for state and local taxes. Um, so, you know, I would still give this a 50-50 chance of passing by the end of the year. But if it doesn't pass by the end of the year, the chances of it passing it all go down pretty precipitously. So the, the realtors groups have all been screaming about the changes to the mortgage deduction. And even the NFIB, which is about as pro-business a group and pro-tax cut a group as you're going to find, came out and, and, and opposed the House version saying the uh, S-Corp and LLC adjustments exempt far too many small businesses so that they can't support it. How, are the, how is the pushback from lobbyists affecting what the final version is going to end up looking like? Well, the answer is not much yet. Uh, and I want to emphasize the word yet. The longer this bill st- sits out there, the longer it takes for them to debate it uh, and to vote on it, um, the more likely it is or the less likely it is that it's going to pass. Uh, that's because the, all the groups you mentioned plus others are, are going to be able to tra- to communicate to their members mm-hmm. well, how bad this is for them. Um, you know, one, yeah. of the, one, one of the big problems with this bill is that uh, for, for the average person is that it's being debated so quickly that they don't know what's in it. Yeah. We have so much to talk about. We're going to come back with Mr. Collender at the budget guy out on Twitter. And we're going to talk to Stan Collender about some of the the ideas here peripheral to the tax reform slash cut. I want to talk about this idea of analysis of the federal bracket as compared to the all-in tax bill that Tom Keene has versus John Tucker because, John Tucker, you enjoy property taxes in New Jersey. Oh, and you know what I get for that? 
What do you get for it? Close your eyes. Okay. What do you see? <laughs> well, you get a tax deduction, though. I had a tax deduction. He had one, as they say. We'll That's come back with point. Stan Collender on your all-in tax. This is Bloomberg. We're going to get back to Stan Conner, but very quickly, a World Cup update around his incredibly busy schedule here at Bloomberg. Uh, John Farrow, you come from the Midlands of Coventry. Coventry was relegated like in the EFL, and there's like the up-down yeah. oddities of English soccer. How how bad is Coventry this year? Are they worse than the Italians? Coventry are pretty bad once again, to the extent that we don't even talk about it in my town, which is about 10 minutes away from Coventry. But I always had the blessing, Tom, that my father was Italian, so I didn't have to support the English teams you and could I could focus China. on in Italy. Why and that is, used to be a good thing. Why is Italy World Cup football different than what we see in Premier League? Uh, I, it's national teams only. That okay. makes the massive difference. Yeah. It's not club well, What's the cultural difference in the, the game? The cultural same difference game? is that the, um, they play the same game, but Italy wins a whole lot more in terms of the, uh, the English national team versus Italy. Italy have won four World Cups, six finals, and they've been in every single World Cup since 1958. How did this happen? How did they, they, they did even... Well, the news, Rich, everyone knows the news. Italy's not going to the World Cup. How did this happen? How did How Sweden did happen? dominate I, this? I don't know, and I still sit here scratching my head. I'm mourning today. Did you stop drinking from last night? I, I stopped. I stopped drinking pretty early on when I when you I had saw to go the back result. on air. I understand. And then, then I had to come on TV this morning, and, and Barry, it's been a, it's been a tough day. Barry, tough day. please jump so, in here with so Mr. So when Farrell. we have a huge upset in either football or or basketball in the U.S. It's often things like injuries, a bad officiating call, yeah. some extraneous event that leads the statistics to to go off the rails. Nothing like that in, in this uh, – def- just a better team beat I, I them? I will say a very ugly conversation is going to start to evolve in the coming days, and it's going to revolve around how many foreigners play in the Italian Domestic Football uh-huh. Club League. So what does that mean? What it means is if more foreigners play competitive football in your domestic league, it means that as the youth comes up, the Italians, the young players, don't get the opportunities in a first team to play elite football. This is an argument that's often made in various leagues when the national team doesn't do so well. For me, it's going to become ugly because there's an Italian an election next year with the populist parties trying to get a foothold with the electorate. And sometimes, it, in and a very that, dirty way, these kind I of just, arguments can resonate. So Sweden doesn't have the same issues? The UK doesn't have the same issues with the UK has The in? UK has exactly the same issues. And, and the how under, they do. And, and the underperformance of the England national team over the last several yeah. decades, a lot of people have cited that as ah. an issue. So there is some consistency there. Did, did, is Sheffield United like the arch enemies of Coventry? No, no. No? No, Aston Villa. Aston Villa is... You've got to get your geography right. Sheffield United is northern England and Coventry's in the Midlands. I'm going to leave you with a final point. Please. Italy might still be out of the World Cup, but an Italian still rules the world. Forza Mario Draghi. <laughs> You're just, it's just, John, it's a better it's all discussion. Can you tell, it's, 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 this is it the magic of Bloomberg policy. Radio. I'm both on Bloomberg Radio and I should be on Bloomberg TV. Can you? Can what, what is Draghi's penalty kick percentage? Is he doing I, well I with imagine, that? Or? I imagine it's better than the Italian national team, okay. Barry. <laughs> Enough. Go back to television. John Farrell, we decided that when we talk soccer, it's better with a British accent. So no we doubt. Got Farrell in here. We're back with Stan Collender, the budget guy. Thank you, Stan, for our digression with Mr. Farrell over to. 
Italy World Cup stand, dead serious on the budget. Holtzikin is better than good. Douglas Holtzikin taking his PhD under Bernanke at Princeton. He's got a vector of 5 6 or 7% deficit to GDP. Do you have a greater confidence in that deterioration of our deficit to GDP because of all this tax cut talk? No, look, the bottom line is that it's, the deficit to GDP ratio was clearly going up and it's going to go up for 20 years under this plan, unless it's changed. 20 years. Wow, that's a, well, that's a big statement. Well, remember that all the estimates of the, uh, the one to two, one and a half to two trillion dollar loss in revenue uh, and increase in the debt is only over the first 10 years. Over the second 10 years, it goes up by, by almost double that. So, so are we going to see the same sort of game we saw with the Bush tax cuts of making this, quote-unquote, temporary by sunsetting after 10 years? Uh, or are these going to be permanent? No, no. Some of it, you've already seen some of the, some of the, the uh, gimmicks that they're using. Rosy economic scenarios, dynamic scoring, uh, phase out, phases, phases in, and p- people basically passing it now and saying, we'll worry about the consequences later. Um, I, I expect that if this passes, it'll be because a lot of people are fooling themselves about economic growth. But let's remember, when Ronald Reagan signed that big tax yep. cut in 81, uh, he then subsequently right. signed 10 tax increases. Okay, but, but there's a major difference here, Stan, and you know the chart I've been using out on Bloomberg, even though you ignore us and never come on air. Uh, but the, <laughs> the bottom line, Stan, is the debt to the debt to GDP was 30%-ish, 40%-ish under Reagan, and now I believe it's 100 or just over 100%. Where's the colander tipping point where that becomes critical to the House and the Senate as they figure out fiscal policy. All right. You've asked two questions. First of all, when does it become critical? Nobody knows because we've never quite been in this situation before. In a peacetime, in a peacetime budget uh, with the debt-to-deficit ratio and the ratio of GDP to, uh, to, to debt being as high as it is, we've never been there. But the real question you asked is when does it become a tipping point on Capitol Hill? And the answer is not anytime soon. This is a damn the the torpedoes, damn the debt, full speed ahead. Uh, we're going we're gonna to pass this because we want to pass it yeah, but, we promise people to But come on, Stan, Stiglitz, among others, has a little G for the growth rate of any given economy. When does your world run up against the little G of the U.S. growth economy? Is it well, like now or is it our children's now? No, no, it, it's not now. Um, and it's probably it could easily be before the 2020 election, but it's more likely to be after, and that's okay. what the politicians are betting on. So, what are the responses from the group of uh, some people call them deficit hawks? I like to call them deficit chicken hawks. The people who refuse to pass uh, more aggressive infrastructure spending, fiscal stimulus, right in the middle of the financial crisis which, according to traditional economics, is when you want to see that fiscal stimulus. How have they done a 180 and 10 years later said, now, with unemployment in the fours and the, and the economy doing fairly well, now's where we're going to have a big fiscal stimulus? Yeah. Uh, How do you Barry, square that the, circle? The, the deficit hawks, it's not clear they ever existed before. It was always a subterfuge to prevent things happening that they didn't like. But uh, I've written a couple you. of columns in Forbes that have said that things like the Freedom Caucus are deficit frauds, that the Republican yeah. Party, which has been so deficit, deficit <clears throat> hawkish in the past, has shown itself to be uninterested when they're in charge. So I, this is, it, yeah. let me state this as directly as possible. This essentially is the end of fiscal policy making in Washington. It's hard wow. to see how we ever go back to reducing the deficit and debt. 
This has been great. Sam Collender, valuable. Thank you so much. At the budget guy on Twitter. Can't say enough about his work, and we'll have him on much more as we migrate to the end of the year. We've got a couple conversations. Alex in London, thank you for your comments on Sheffield and Coventry. He was dazzled by my football knowledge. Good morning, Boston 106.1 FM, Bloomberg 106.1 FM, Boston. La Valley Lumber Company. We've been doing two-by-fours at Home Depot. Mm, Harold and Geraldine Lavely, I think Lavely, L-A-V-A-L-L-E-Y. Laval. I don't know. I'm going to say Vermont like, and New like Hampshire. Senator Laval, state, Could, New York State Senator Laval. Well, Lavalley, is, it's got a valley in it. All right, that, get to the point. We, what? It's a great lumber company, I'm told. Okay. With guaranteed straight two by fours. Straight two by fours. Up four. in the snows of Vermont and New Hampshire. We say good morning. Well, you would expect that. We're hearing there. from lumber companies all around this great you nation. Want, you want straight two by fours. You can't use a warped two by four. Well, I actually have the machine. My father that could. Will straighten them out. <laughs> really? But, I have, I have my techniques. We are we are getting into when the in a bind, here. right? I uh, I have a jointer and a planer. So oh really? Do you do a lot of woodwork? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. You haven't seen some of my work. I have a leaf blower, and I will occasionally <laughs> blow leaves. It's from not the, the same. Walk. It's not That's, the same thing. <laughs> I, I I can do that. Okay. I can do that on my own. That's good. Can we go to Home Depot? I like. like You're not. Want to do a field no. trip? Yeah, you know, there's right some downstairs. around here. You know, I mean, the full Home Depot. Not no, but going with John Tucker is a different experience. But you have to go to one of the full size superstores. That's and true. Not, not a suburban the little kind appliance of like the Manhattan. So I could take Uber out, and you and I could do that. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> this is Bloomberg with Barry Ritholtz and John Tucker. Good morning. This is a joy on Emerging Markets. Raji Jane with us with a GQG uh, Partners, and they are in Emerging Markets. And I believe they have timed the setup. Well, you were with Vontable, and you go over. Did you time perfectly setting up your own shop involving billions of dollars? And like everybody said, okay, Rajiv's out in his own. Let's have a bull market. Is that how it worked out? <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think I think um the timing turned out to be uh, you know reasonable but obviously nobody knew i mean emerging markets coming out of a long bear market and i yeah. think we are still in early stages if any compared to europe and other places let me get barry's got a million questions on this my key one is is the emerging markets in the textbooks 10 20 and 30 mar- years ago is that still true today or is it a new dynamic to equity investment in emerging markets it, it it it's 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 a very different dynamic. I mean, if I go back to the '90s when I started running emerging market funds, I mean, it was much more about export-oriented companies. There was there wasn't much a domestic economy as such, right? If you go yeah. back to the '90s, now if you go to this the the decade after that, in the 2000s, it was much more commodity-driven bull market. Now today, if you look at it, it's much more technology-driven, and, and the domestic consumption patterns have also shifted away from what the consumer staples, you know, the the quasi the Coca the Coca Colas, the the Colgates, the Unilevers, away from from that into much more of tech consumption, so which I feel is the new consumer is really driven by that rather than, and obviously, you know, the the finance part of it. You, you very much anticipated my question, which was going to be a decade or two ago, the strength or weakness of the dollar was perhaps the most important factor uh, for these con- countries that were so commodity and export dependent. How significant is the strength of the dollar 
if they're moving away from commodities? It's it's a lot less important. So if you look at, I mean, Asian trade as such, the dependence on U.S. has gone down dramatically. Uh, India was always a lot more domestic economy, but if you look mm-hmm. at China itself, uh, their exports overall have not come down despite shifting the low value added stuff to you know Vietnam and Bangladesh of this world. So so I think I think I think it still seem, remains uh, to be seen if there's a massive run in dollar, uh, which I don't really anticipate. Uh, but I think I think there's a lot more domestic story, not staples, but other domestic stories. So so you mentioned India. We've we've looked at China as a big driver of the past. Decade, two decades of not only commodity consumption, but manufacturing and export. When is India going to start impacting the global economy similarly to China? I know it's much smaller in terms of land mass, but it's still more than a billion people and much more high tech uh, and software driven than China seems to be. I think I think if you look, if you talk to the commodity companies and their estimates on a go forward basis, one of the key drivers would be consumption from India because there have been a tremendous amount of reforms that have taken place. Mm-hmm. So while the corporate earnings picture doesn't look that good, uh, I'm pretty mm-hmm. bullish in terms of the infrastructure investment that's going to take place. While China is becoming less capital intensive or capital formation is going down, yeah. it's uh-huh. not doing the same rate. So I think I think India would be a key driver from a commodity you know commodity perspective. Rajiv Jain with us with uh, GQG Partners. Are alternative investments, hedge funds, long, short, black box, quants, global, macro, are they in the emerging markets or is it just too diffuse for them where they've got to go play in other places? No, I think it, it depends on market to market. So if you look at Hong Kong, for example, yeah. there's a lot of the Chinese equities trade, it is it has much more impact. Uh, but a lot of the other markets, the impact is a lot less. So it, it is not as pervasive as it is probably in the U.S. Hmm. So, so – if we're if you're looking at some of these frontier markets, frontier countries, what's the next part of the world that's going to move from really the wild west, the frontier, into a more developed emerging market country? Yeah, so I'm I'm, I'm kind of a skeptical guy. So mm-hmm. I think if I, I think most emerging markets would not emerge. They're not emerging. What, they, what they, about they would not emerge? But however, you get these cycles, right? Argentina. I don't, I don't know how many times it has emerged and then went back. It right. was one of the one of the more developed countries, nineteen forties, right? Uh, right? It was actually as developed as U.S. in terms of per capita income, and went in reverse for a long time. So it's coming out of you know basically hibernation of sixteen, seventeen years. <laughs> so you go through these cycles, hard to predict where he's going to have a secular long term runway. What, what about Africa, which is perennially on the verge of seeing some progress and then the same thing they they sort of fall back are we going to see any of these countries modernize become a more significant economy anytime soon yeah i think i think i think on a longer term basis yes because if you look at the child mortality and those kind of statistics they've improved dramatically so yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty upbeat on a very long term basis on those areas mm. rajiv thank you so much rajiv jain with us with gqg please come back we'd love to have you back in particularly you know emerging markets bear they've just sprung to life over the last 12 months uh, well, you know, you go through these long cycles where yeah. the U.S. outperforms emerging markets for 8, 10, 12 years. Yeah. And, uh, in fact, if you look at the gains in the U.S., emerging market, the gap between the two is as big as it's gotten in forever. How come when Pharaoh shows up, he gets all the love and emails and tweets and, you know, we get nothing? I don't know. I can't yeah, answer that question. That thank, thank you to John Taylor. He has an expertise. Italian World Cup wisdom. It was just uh, hugely popular.
right now the voice of William Blair on industrials, and we do want to get to industrials and not just look at Generous Electric, is Nick Heyman uh, joins us now. Nick, um, I think everybody knows the story of GE and the debacle down. Organic revenue growth forward, can they surprise or is it going to be single-digit mediocrity? Well, that's going to be a key requirement of the new team. You know, we do have uh, certainly probably one of the, the best global growth GDP outlooks for 2018 yep. since 2012 or maybe even six. And capital spending has come roaring back. And uh, so you got to you know, make sure you got the sales to uh, to lift and benefit from that. Away from aviation, is there an overcapacity worldwide in the remaining divisions they have? Is it just there's too much power stuff chasing after whatever the available market is? The power stuff is an issue, you know, as it relates to both the shift to renewables and then geographically the shift from developed to emerging and non-developed countries. And I think this was exacerbated by the fact that there was a egregious pull forward of advanced gas path and other uh, aftermarket service um, sales in the last 18 months. And so that in turn is a key part of why you now have to suddenly catch up on a restructuring to reduce capacity. Demand peaked in 16, and it was expected to uh, to begin to improve uh, in 19, but that is not the uh, expectation now. So, so hey, this is Barry Ritholtz. How much of these changes that we're seeing in both the GE revenue distribution and, and their business focus is not unique to GE, but we're going to see other large industrials have to tack to the uh, – is this the modern world, the changing economy, the digital world? What are the factors for GE that are consistent uh, across the entire sector and not unique to, to General Electric? That's a really good question, and we actually sat down and talked about that for an hour this morning in our industrial team. And um, I think that one of the things that came out yesterday is that GE is stepping back from the oil and gas business and ostensibly from transportation at some point in the future because of their inherent underlying cyclicality, and that that in turn makes it hard no matter how well you worked to run and plan and develop new products and services and analytics for business, makes it hard to be able to take and uh, offset that cyclicality and generate consistent above-average returns. But it, isn't that the nature of the economy, that some sectors are going to be consistent and some sectors are going to be cyclical? Why, why would you want to move away from a, a strong sector that is occasionally cyclical if, if there are profits to be had there? No, I mean, quite honestly, that's why we put together things called conglomerates or diversified industrials so that they, quote, unquote, offset those. But I think that, uh, you know, it's pretty clear if you invest, at least at this point, you still make great profits in aviation unless, you know, the transatmospheric rocket there from, uh, you know, Elon Musk is going to take off tomorrow morning. But, um, no, in the the transportation side, we spend a lot of time focusing on rail, and it's a great market. But it's a great market supplying perhaps safety equipment as opposed to big iron. And in turn, big iron carries with it big fixed costs. And so they have been extremely successful at predictive analytics for the six 
uh, class uh, one rails here in North America. But still, even though that's 15% of sales here mm-hmm. in 17 and 40% of earnings, they still are looking, I think, to make sure they have the electrified okay, version of how to move people. Nick came in with us with William Blair as we tear apart GE. Nick, they've got to sell these companies that they're jettisoning to somebody else under highly visible and bright lights. Yeah. What is your experience of forget about GE, somebody's got to be dumb enough to buy this stuff? <laughs> Who are those guys? You know, it's a very good question. I don't, I, right now I would be scratching my head. Who wants to buy current? You know, the next, uh, you know, kind of um, sensor-laden, you know, LED commercial lighting. Um, okay, you know, certainly. take it as an example. Who, yeah, that, where, I mean, what's the price? Who are these people? Um, it'll be very interesting to see, you know, whether or not, you know, these, quote, next-generation businesses that Jeff and uh, Beth Comstock put together are actually saleable. I would tell you, for instance, though, there are some assets like the joint venture uh, to develop the integrated avionics suite for the Comac C919, okay, uh, that GE has with AVIC, 50% of that. Um, that could be extremely valuable to Boeing, who wants to get in the avionics business, but can't possibly buy Rockwell Collins. <clears throat> hmm, that's interesting. So there's things like that that you could pull out of a hat, which only drain cash, burn up working capital, and have horrible yeah. return. You know, invest. I asked yesterday, John, what is the net collective free cash from all the assets you're thinking about selling? And he said, virtually none. Really? Yeah, this so, is a huge deal. You got to move this stuff. So, so how significant are the regulators and the antitrust rules uh, on narrowing the list of potential buyers for these different divisions? Would the Boeing avionics segment actually fly? Um, or oh yeah, I mean, I mean that, that, it, 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 it no doesn't even in commercial service, right? Right. So it's it's the it's the avionics suite for the next largest market for the next 20 years for commercial aviation, which hasn't even hatched. And there's no problem with it essentially being Boeing and Bombardier and Airbus and... Well, no, not- no, no, no. There, there's nobody selling anything into the Chinese, you know, uh, domain, uh, mm-hmm. you know, aircraft manufacturer, Comac. So if, if, if Boeing were to buy, uh, you know, Rockwell Collins, right. all the Rockwell Collins avionics that go into, you know, competitors of Boeing's planes would suddenly no longer... Right. You know, be be finding a yeah. home there. So th- this is <clears throat> this is a very unique kind of situation as you look across the different types of businesses because right. transportation, I think, is a merger maybe with a Bombardier Transport. So you have then a complete suite of right. transit or passenger as well as freight and a much more global. Okay, and all the different types of you know uh, propulsion systems, fossil or high yeah. diesel electric or like that. Yeah. This is, I mean, they, they ran. Right into that buzzsaw in India. Yeah. Nick, 10 seconds. Buy, hold, sell on GE 12 months out. Where are you? Uh, right now, we're, we're a buy, and we think that as you unlock you know, the value from these asset sales, it's probably going to be more disposable cash than the combined free cash flow of 16 or $17 billion in 18 and 19. Very good. Nick Heyman, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate Total Class Act to come on. Nick Heyman with William Blair. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews 
on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.